You know, there's an important, uh, you can fix that for me, Mike. I'll talk quiet till you get it done. <coughs> there is an important part <coughs> of why we do our sermons the way we do. Why we don't do a topical series or some sort of message that can be easily packaged each week while there certainly is a takeaway each week. I believe with all my heart, my mind and soul that the answers to our life don't lie in cherry picking truth, but systematically going through book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It takes a lot more work. Also, it may not be as marketable sometimes. <clears throat> but especially in times like this when our church is dealing with a lot of things and you know, we talked about Al, but we know we have Hilda and we have Greg. We have a lot of people who are displaced right now for health reasons. And people who are displaced for other reasons. There's a lot going on. And so it's fitting <clears throat> that we start, and I'm comforted by the fact <clears throat> that we're starting a new series called Remember the Cross. It's a book written by First Peter to first century Christians who were suffering far more than we could ever imagine. I started planning for this series about one-third of the way through the Mark series. Just so you know, this has been going on for a while. I did not plan it this way. But we're starting a series this week called Remember the Cross, a study in 1 Peter. And the first one in this series is called A Living Hope. <clears throat> what are some of your hopes? and maybe your dreams, things you desire for yourself, maybe even things you desire for your children, for your family, maybe even your country. What about hopes which are maybe a little less long-term, <clears throat> like hopes you have for the lunch you're going to have after church, hoping that I don't go over and make you really hungry? Hopes you have for this coming week, something that's going to happen that you hope turns out well. Maybe it's a doctor appointment. Maybe it's a vacation you're about to take. Maybe it's a certain relationship you are pursuing or a relationship or a type of relationship that you desire. Maybe it's hope for some sort of job situation that you hope will resolve itself. Maybe your greatest hopes are in fact medical for healing, not just physically but emotionally spiritually. Maybe you just want to have a life of peace. <clears throat> these are good hopes, but the sad thing is all these hopes have one thing in common, which is this. Yes, it is that our outcome of these hopes will meet and exceed our expectations, right? We want that, and that's what we want for these hopes that I've just named, that the outcome would exceed our expectations or at least meet our expectations. However, even in the best of circumstances, Fulfillment of these hopes is frighteningly temporary. As a matter of fact, all the hopes that I just listed, in the best case scenario, they all end with life on earth. Ultimately, all these hopes, even perfectly fulfilled, will fail you. And if these are your greatest hopes, you are in fact actually, sadly, hopeless. You want the life you hope for, you're going to need to learn the difference 
between dying hope and living hope. You'll need to learn how to be sure that living hope is, in fact, your top priority, your top passion, no matter how precious your dying hopes may seem. You ready? You can tell this is going to be a really light series, right? <clears throat> so the verse isn't up there. I'll just read it for you. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I'll give you a map later for that. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, this is the reason he wrote the letter. He wrote it according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a lot of history that you have to understand in this series before you're going to really understand what living hope and what 1 Peter is all about. First of all, I want you to see this is a church, this region, a church that is suffering in faith. They are, in fact, the suffering faithful. And it starts with this idea, you know, Nero is the, is the, is the Caesar at this point, and he's very bloody. He's bloody Nero. 1 Peter's written sometime between 65 and 68 A.D., so it, you know it's about a little more than 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> this is during a horrible time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. It might, in fact, be the worst time to be a Christian in world history because Nero is a bloody, vicious, self-worshipping tyrant who found tremendous joy in persecuting Christians. He found joy in his own personal debauchery. Nero held particular disdain for people like Peter and Paul and anyone who might have followed their teachings about Jesus. So here's a map, just so you understand where this region is that he's writing. Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. It's all right there. You see the Italy boot right there, so you understand where this is. North of Africa. So that's where the region is. Everybody in that region. It's modern-day Turkey. And this persecution in this particular region in the Roman Empire, which is modern-day Turkey, was some of the absolute worst in all of the Roman Empire. The locals who really wanted to ingratiate themselves with Nero were taking it another level. Our first century brothers and sisters that Peter's writing here faced a brutal, painful, horrible, torturous life because of their commitment to Jesus. They were considered enemies not only of Nero, but of the local pagan religions as well. Those religions that these believers had chosen after generations to abandon. They were constant targets of immediate, immense brutality. Local authorities, like I said, who ingratiated themselves to Nero, they were taking it to the next level. It was so ingrained, this 
this torture, this persecution of Christians, it was so ingrained in local culture, even private citizens targeted anyone associated with apostles. They have targeted them with violence. For Peter to write this letter in itself is a huge risk. In fact, he was killed not long after doing this in 2 Peter. I often hear Christians talk about persecution we face here in America. Honestly, I scoff at that compared to this. We have no idea. You think it's bad here? This is real persecution. But how they believe is actually pretty amazing. Get this. Peter starts off by calling this audience of persecuted Gentile believers. He says, you are elect exiles. These Gentiles had heard the gospel. You know where they heard the gospel from? Through Paul's first missionary journey nearly 20 years earlier. 48 AD. Paul is there preaching, planting churches. Paul was persecuted there. And the scripture knows that we follow through Act, giving you a little bit of history of this region. The scripture tells us about how the word of their faithfulness wasn't lost on the early church fathers in Jerusalem. In fact, the news of their faith and how faithful they were even 20 years ago left them in awe. Peter would certainly have been on this list of early church fathers who was in awe of their faithfulness. And he writes this letter to affirm them and encourage them to continue. The timing of the writing of 1 Peter makes it very probable that Peter was attempting to fill a gap left by Paul who had died in 67 AD. The apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, is no longer around to encourage and motivate and inspire these churches that he planted, all these children in the faith that he had birthed. So it seems a year later, Peter is writing this because he feels the need as one of the apostles to pick up where Paul left off. We saw that in our study Beth Ephesians when we talked about, or in 1 John, when we talked about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and John the Elder writing to Paul's churches. This is Peter, an apostle to the Jews, picking up the mantle of Paul, expressing solidarity and love and affection for Gentiles who he calls exiles. The stakes are high, church. It's not like being a Christian today in America where the biggest risk is maybe a nasty meme or two from an atheist. These are amazing brothers and sisters that God has chosen. He has called. He has set them apart, given them unbelievable faith, and they are part of his people. A miraculous faith which yielded mind-boggling courage to me, mind-boggling courage to turn their backs on local pagan culture at the risk of death for them and their children and their wives. I mean, think about it. What first century person in their right mind would risk and subject themselves to this type of persecution over a dead rabbi? And this is their way of life. It is a life in persecution. To understand Peter's concept of living hope, you need the background. You needed to hear all that of what life was like for them. They were actually in daily conflict with a hostile, an actual hostile government. Some think we face that today. I don't think it's anywhere in comparison. Much of this persecution is actually 
in fact, recounted by John in the book of Revelation. A lot of people think when John talks about it, it's prophecy. No, it's history, and he's recounting it. Evil trying to destroy the church, but we know this, based upon this letter that we have that I'm preaching today, evil failed. See, my words, I, I almost feel, I feel like my words fail to describe the full extent of the unity, the passion, the emotion that is overriding their fear and anxiety of this first century church. The fact even Peter calling them the elect, living in exile in a pagan land, it actually makes them and their families a huge target. It is hard for us to comprehend. The closest we can get is being shunned on social media, losing a job, or a nasty teacher who gives a young Christian person a bad grade. That's about it. It's truly, as I was studying this, I was overcome with the emotion of what these people were facing. It is truly a stirring thing. It is, listen, it is full-on, fearless, complete, 100% identification with his Gentile brothers and sisters. It is beautiful unity. How irrational would you have to be to be a follower of Jesus at that time in a region that put the possible cost, your life? Here's the answer. Following Jesus, listen to me, following Jesus is never rational from a worldly perspective. Following Jesus is a result of supernatural installation of living hope. So that's the history. Let's look at the spiritual. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I'm going to talk about living hope and what it is. How did this massive persecution fail? It seems like it would certainly succeed, right? Well, Peter describes the foundation of their faith and perseverance as living hope. Peter is inspired by God to use a very specific, <clears throat> now don't lose me when I tell you this. I'm going to use a word that some of you just, your eyes are going to glaze over. It's the word participle. God leads Peter to use a very specific participle, a verb that is used as an adjective to describe a noun. See, the beautiful thing about the Greek New Testament is how the endings and tenses are very exact and precise, and there's very little guesswork to understand what words go to where and what they mean and what the tense is and the mood and the gender and all that stuff. It's a beautiful, exact language. Unlike Hebrew, which is very poetic and sometimes hard to understand, Greek is like if there was a math language, it would be Greek. And here's the participle. Zosan. The actual Greek word, the root of it is zoe. It means life. This is a participle that is in its tense, its present active, feminine, plural. Don't tune me out. This is a description that saying that hope, zosan, hope, is being made active without a conceivable end. This participle is grammatically locked on purpose in a way that many others are not. It is airtight locked grammatically with the word hope in gender and in plurality. And then we see the verbal tense of this participle is present active, meaning it is a continually present description of this hope. 
It is a living hope, a hope that is alive and is continuing to be alive and will be alive. The feminine part is because the word hope was written with a feminine ending. And so the gerund, or the participle, has to have the gerund. That's next week. Don't, don't miss me out on that one, okay? You want to be, you want to be here for gerund, okay? The hope is tied to living, and there is no way to separate them. Some people, some theologians have tried. You cannot be a serious student of the Bible and separate the word living from hope. Why should you care about this stupid English lesson? Peter described the living, or I love the way, now, I don't always love the way the King James translates things, but I do really love it here. Kings, King James actually translates this word lively hope. Doesn't that sound better? Peter describes a lively hope which is and will preserve actively these persecuted saints. And what's the theology behind this? This living hope, that tense, doesn't end with the first century Christians. This living hope is still currently active and alive in the same way covering God's elect exiles today, us. It's a miraculous living hope which is incorruptible. Listen to these words because you're going to see why it's important. It is a living hope which is incorruptible, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's not going anywhere. It's a lot in those two words, is it not? But then we also have to understand what dying hope is. For you, for you to fully appreciate lively hope, I need to spend some important time defining its opposite, which is dying hope. I'm going to read to you a verse in Matthew. Jesus was teaching in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what he's describing, Jesus, is there? Dying hopes. Dying hope is any hope whose benefits will end at some point whether it's in a day, a year, a decade, or the end of your life, or the end of your children's life, or your family's life. In this passage that I just read to you in Matthew 6, Jesus is describing a direct contrast with what Peter is teaching these exiled elect. He describes the vanity, Jesus does, of dying hope. Anything corruptible, perishable, defiled, and fading. And here's the mistake we made when we read Jesus' passage. We think... That treasure means gold, diamonds, money, Mercedes. But treasures aren't just gold, diamonds, and money. Treasures that Jesus is talking about here is not just physical, actual treasures you can touch. It's anything, church, anything you cherish whose benefits end with the grave. That's a whole different level of thinking about it, isn't it? To the extreme, hope for a better, safer, more secure life for your family. That has an end, does it not? Even if it all goes according to the plan, earthly, it has an end. Those are treasures on earth. 
The enemy wanted to distract God's elect from living hope with the overwhelming fear of bloody persecution. He wanted them to abandon their living hope and exchange it for a dying hope, which is peace with Rome or the world. Romans chapter 5, verses, the second half of verse 3 and 5. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. By the way, that word hope, it's the same gender and plurality of the one that Peter talks about in 1 Peter. There's an undeniable grammatical tie here. See, during their suffering, these precious first century brothers and sisters in Christ understood this temptation. They knew that all they had to do to enjoy some of the best benefits of dying hope is abandon their public faith. They didn't have to abandon their faith even. They just had to pretend like they didn't love Jesus. You don't think that these first century suffering believers had hopes of a better life for them? For their kids? But they believed their living hope was greater than any dying hope. And today the enemy's goals are the same as they are when this was written. He wants to distract you, elect exiles, the church, from living hope. Here's the personal section. What are we supposed to do during this series? What are we supposed to learn? How is this supposed to change us? I've entitled this personal section, Hopeful Distractions. This was the uh, social media thing I did this week. Unless your greatest hope is eternal, life will be an inevitable disappointment. What if, just hypothetically, just bear, follow me here. What if those first century Christians had folded to persecution and abandoned their living hope? What if they chose dying hope abandoned their living hope for the sake of their family, for the sake of their children. See, in the end, though, you may think, wow, I would never want to be in that position. In the end, their choice actually was pretty easy. I mean, it was a very stark contrast. No, we are not going to give up our living hope. It's very clear. We want life. We want eternity. We want to be with God. I think our temptation... Our choice is much more nuanced and much more difficult in the American church. The dying hopes we are tempted with are far more subtle, and it's a big problem, and it is, in fact, a daily perilous distraction for us. Many of you right now today are sitting in this room in a daily struggle of choosing between your dying hopes and your living hope. Unlike their choice, our dying hopes can actually feel quite rational. They can even feel righteous. We can even feel patriotic. We can feel spiritual. Even our hope for good health. But you know, we also have short-term dying hopes for next week. They're mostly circumstantial. Hoping something comes to pass, experiential. Boy, I hope I get to see this or feel this. Then we have those long-term dying hopes that I've just described. We have hopes for financial security. Some Christians, sadly, on the left and the right, have more hope for political victory than they do living hope. And I'm tired of it. 
We're so passionate about making sure we have a culture that matches our values. Do you think the Roman Empire matched these first century Christians' values? And yes, we can be distracted. I'm not saying that we can't hope for a better life for our children. There's nothing immoral about these hopes that I've described. I'm not saying you can't ever hope for those things. Hoping for them isn't misguided. It's not sinful. And yes, it is even okay to strive for these hopes. Do you follow? But church, as beautiful as those hopes can be, and as beautiful as they may seem, as satisfying as they may feel, all of them, all of them end with the grave. They are, in fact, all of those things, as beautiful as they are, they are dying hopes. What is the point of a life whose greatest hopes are all dying? Frankly, what are the signs that you are distracted by dying hopes? How do you know? I mean, because I just said it's okay to pursue some of these hopes. How do you know if I'm out of whack? Some of you have chosen to make these dying hopes more important than your living hope. Your actions display a life where dying hopes mean more to you than the living hope Peter is describing. How can you know? It's simple, but a very sobering test. Where do you spend most of your thoughts, your time, and your money? If most of your emotion, if most of your thoughts, if most of your time, and most of your money are spent pursuing dying hopes, you are actually actively choosing those over your living hope. When believers are distracted by dying hope, that is when, to borrow a phrase from one of my dear friends in recovery ministry, that's when we start to wobble. We get angry. We become entitled. We start to become unfaithful. Just like Jonah. See, dying hopes create unhealthy obsession with desiring temporary outcomes that suck up your time, your talent, and your treasure. Dying hope becomes a catalyst for bad choices, out-of-whack priorities, sinful habits. You begin to neglect the people of God, and now you start to experience all the consequences of pursuing these dying hopes more than you pursue your living hope. Dying hope leaves us with unexplained guilt. We can't really even put our finger on it and we have this obscure, as believers, obscure, empty pain that often we can't even explain why. The fact is, nothing leaves God's children more in despair than moments dying hope has let you down. How did I ever allow myself to be pulled so far afield from the one true hope that lives forever? So let's talk about how we return to living hope. Like, how do we live our life in a way where, look, all these other hopes, while they're legitimate, and we do, we do have to spend, I'm not asking you to be a monk. We do have to spend in life times where we think about some of these other hopes that are dying. And just because they're dying hopes doesn't mean they're sinful hopes. They're part of the life experience. But as believers, we are called to learn and know how to make living hope the priority. How do we do that? I will tell you, as a young man in ministry, 
I went through a time where dying hopes had overtaken my priorities. And of course, I've never struggled with it since. Just kidding. This is another one of those sermon series where I actually studied it 23, 24 years ago. And I'm going back to my notes in my journal to help write this series. I will tell you, nothing is more glorious for a child of God than the moment God's elect exiles return to the comfort of beautiful, precious, never-fading living hope. We've all had that experience where there's a moment where, oh my goodness, I have abandoned my living hope. I'm going back to it. I'm going to read to you an excerpt from my journal that I found this week. It's an old, you know those little, what, those metal spiral notebooks we used to use? Does anybody use those anymore? I have them, yes, no. I found mine, and I was going through it, and I found this journal as I was studying 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This was my prayer moment. This is my prayer part, not the study part. This is my prayer part. I confess my obsession with dying hopes, which end with death. I must remain focused on living hope above all others. I cannot be a prisoner to dying hopes like money, circumstances, or politics. I will strive to make living hope the priority of my time and my treasure. My hope is in Jesus and what he has done, is doing, and will do with my heart, mind, and my eternal soul. I have living hope. That's from 1998. Living hopes change our behavior. Living hopes purify our decisions. Living hopes infuse wisdom into how we interact with the world around us. Living hope inspires us to abandon our addiction to dying hopes. Living hope provides comfort when all these dying hopes begin to fail. Living hope births priorities and passions which are eternal, not temporary. Living hope puts dying hope in its proper place. Living hope is supernatural. It is divine in its inspiration as well as its installation into the hearts of God's elect exiles. Living hope will never allow its promises to be overshadowed by earthly circumstances, good or bad. Living hope empowers us to a life of courage, not anger, sacrifice, not fighting, faithfulness, not faithlessness. No matter the promises that dying hope can make, we will have a life of courage and sacrifice. In this series of 1 Peter, my passion for you as your pastor, for, you, for, for those of you here and those watching at home and those watching later on this week, I want you to be liberated from the cruel prison of dying hopes, which can never and will never satisfy your hungry heart and your hungry soul. I want you to live with a purpose much higher than pursuing just dying hopes, not just for you, but also for those you love. Church, we have been saved by God's sovereign grace, as Peter said, to a living hope. We need to live like it. 
That's what 1 Peter will be teaching us. Are you ready? Don't miss a week. Heavenly Father, it is very easy for us to be distracted by dying hopes. Even the ones that are good. The ones that seem pure and motive, maybe they are. But we can spend so much time thinking about them, obsessed with them. We begin to lose sight of our living hope. Heavenly Father, I pray for those here today who are in a intellectual, emotional, spiritual battle within their heart and mind about dying hopes and living hope. Lord, this is such a tricky road for us to travel because we live in a world full of things that we can see. But faith is a substance of the things we can't see. Holy Spirit, we are asking you to supernaturally install living hope as our number one priority. Infuse us with wisdom to know when dying hope is taking over. Help us to know how to pursue living hope first. And while we look for these dying hopes that we need for life, that you would allow us to, to know and understand the priorities. Help us be open and sober-minded as we analyze our thoughts, our time, and our treasure, where are most of them spent. As we go through this study in 1 Peter, we pray that you would make us ever more aware of the joy of returning to our living hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week we ask that you continue to pray for those in our church who are hurting, struggling with sickness. Some are struggling with emotional burden, financial. And we want to pray for those things, but we also want to pray that we become more obsessed with our living hope. Amen? Have a great week. We'll see you guys next week.